Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. When scholars analyse Thai politics, they tend to give importance to institutions like the monarchy, the military, the parliament and political parties, or political ideas like royalist nationalism or democracy. But what if the real driver of Thai politics was none of these things, but instead political families? Yoshinori Nishizaki examines this proposition in his new book, Dynastic Democracy, Political Families in Thailand, which has just been published by University of Wisconsin Press in 2022. In this incredibly researched book, Nishizaki makes a powerful argument that it is the struggles between different political families that have helped shape modern Thai politics. In pursuing this argument, Nishizaki questions some of the major assumptions about Thailand's modern political history. And the book's approach may also help us to better understand the contemporary politics of other Southeast Asian countries. Today I'm talking to the book's author, Yoshinori Nishizaki. Uh, Yoshinori is Associate Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. Yoshinori, thank you so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Patrick. We always start up our interviews with a traditional question, I guess you'd say, by asking how and why you first became interested in Southeast Asian politics and the politics of Thailand in particular? I guess I my initial interest in Thailand, uh, it was kind of accidental. I guess I owe it to the late Benjamin Basson, whom I met at the NUS, at the National University of Singapore, when I was an undergraduate. 
back then, I was not particularly interested in uh, Thailand. I was much more interested in the uh, in the history of uh, Malaysia and uh, Singapore. And then I had a chance to meet uh, Dr. Basson, as I always call him by that official title. Uh, I was uh, introduced to him in the hallway of the history department at NUS. And uh, for some reason or another, he liked uh, Japan very much. He was partial to Japanese students. Uh, so when I told him that I was looking for a place to live in Singapore, he kindly let me stay at his place for several months and for free to boot. And uh, during that time, he would tell me often, almost every day, about Thai history, Thai politics, about the Thai monarchy, and uh, actually about everything about Thailand. And uh, that's when and how I became interested in Thailand. Uh, uh, looking back, I guess our views of the monarchy were uh, very different, uh, to put it mildly. But nonetheless, I, there's no doubt that I owe my first serious academic interest in Thailand to him. If I may talk about how I got interested in the political dynasties. Uh, I was going to ask you that question time. next. Yes, uh, how did you become interested in the theme of political families? Uh, yeah, this, uh, as for my interest in political families of uh, uh, Thailand, it goes back a long time, back to the late 1990s uh, when I was doing my dissertation fieldwork in Thailand. Uh, as you might know, my dissertation was about uh, late Ban Han Silapacha, uh, former prime minister of Thailand, who was elected as an MP or a member of parliament for Subhambri province, located about 100 kilometers north of Bangkok. Ban Han had uh, won a landslide victory in every election he contested, and I wanted to explain why in my dissertation. And in the course of doing research on this topic and observing his actions in Subhambri, I was quite struck, uh, among other things, by his uh, family politics. That is, by this time, by the late 1990s, he was almost 70 years old and he was, uh, he was doing everything he could to transfer his political office to, to his family members. So uh, by this time, he had succeeded in having his eldest daughter, Ganchana, elected as uh, another MP for Supambri. And now he was trying to groom his only son, Warwood, as another of his political successors. So he was introducing Warwood to the voters on every occasion he had. And a couple of years later, in 2001, uh, Warwood did become another MP for Supambri. And I saw that Ban Han was not the only politician in Supambri who was playing family politics. I saw that the other veteran MPs for Supambri were doing exactly the same thing. They had made uh, successful attempts to cultivate their family members as political successors. I knew, of course, all along that family politics or family ties or political families were integral elements of Thailand's electoral politics, but having seen firsthand how political office was being handed down from generation to generation within various political families, I realized their importance all the more. I didn't choose uh, family politics as the topic of my dissertation, but its importance stuck in my head. And then, shortly before I turned my dissertation into my first book, I naturally started thinking about what to do next. And at that time, I remembered the family politics in Supambri, and I said to myself, oh, maybe I can work on this issue in my next project. That's how the uh, project on political families got started. But instead of focusing narrowly on political families in just one or two provinces, of Thailand, I decided to look at all the provinces of the country uh, instead. 
I thought correctly, I hope, that doing so would enhance the appeal of my book project to a broad audience in Thai studies and perhaps even to an audience beyond the Thai studies as well. Initially, I was just interested in examining the family ties of all female politicians who've been elected in the decades since 1973, which is the period in which Thailand's electoral politics has taken deep root despite occasional setbacks. But over time, I also became interested in male MPs who've been elected during the same period. And naturally, I also became interested, over time, I became interested in, the, in all the MPs, both male and female who had been elected in the decades before 1973, in the early decades after the 1932 revolution overthrew the absolute monarchy. So the temporal as well as the geographical scope of my book project uh, has expanded over time, which is why it has taken me uh, much, much longer to complete than I had originally anticipated. It's been like uh, more than 10 years in the making. Yeah, so it's been quite a long journey. It's been all uphill. One of the truly impressive things about this book is the amount of source material on which it's based. It's really quite something. You write that you've consulted almost 1,000 cremation volumes. These are these kind of like a memoir of of the deceased that are compiled and distributed at at, at cremations in Thailand. On top of that, you've trawled through, I understand, around 2,000 assets and liabilities accounts which contain information about the lives and family backgrounds of Thailand's parliamentarians. Can you tell the listener about the research that went into writing the book? Well, frankly, I didn't adopt any uh, elaborate research design or uh, research methodology in my book. I just did my research in the way a detective would on the basis of uh, Thai language primary sources. In particular, as you mentioned, I made uh, extensive use of the so-called the cremation volumes. As you know, and as many of the listeners uh, should know, issuing these documents is uh, peculiar or unique to Thai society. After the passing of uh, famous people like politicians, the surviving family members uh, issue documents, booklets to commemorate the lives of the deceased. These uh, documents are great sources of information on the family ties or marriage ties of the deceased individuals. And these documents are kept at the various universities libraries in Bangkok, especially at uh, Tamasat, Chilalongkorn, and uh, to a lesser extent at uh, Bangkok University. And also at, uh, uh, these documents are kept at the Library of the National Parliament of Thailand, and not forgetting at the Library of the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Kyoto University in Japan. Uh, Kyoto has an excellent, uh, probably unrivaled collection of cremation volumes. So I base my argument on these documents and other Thai languages primary sources. The way I did research uh, was was rather quite simple, uh, although time-consuming. Suppose I was interested in uh, finding out about the family ties of a particular royalist individual with a family name A. Then I would uh, first look for as many cremation volumes and other documents as I could uh, on the people with the same family name A. Uh, not just the document on the particular royalist individual that I was interested in. And then then once I saw in any of the documents that this royalist individual was married to someone from family B, 
be, or that this、uh, individual was had a brother or sister who married someone from another family C, or that、uh, this、uh, royalist individual had a mother who came from another family D. Then I will. Go and look for as many cremation volumes and other sources as I could on the people, on all the people with the same family names B, C, and D. As you might imagine, this research process was quite time-consuming, but in the end, it was quite worthwhile and fruitful. And、some of the people who have taken a look at my book have said to me, "Oh, it must have been very difficult and tiring for you to gather all the information that you present in your book." I say to these people, "Yeah, it was certainly difficult and time-consuming, but I actually enjoyed the process. I enjoyed every minute of the process through which I looked for cremation volumes and other documents and delved into the family ties of、uh, the politicians and other prominent individuals that I was." Interested in the whole process was sort of like a, a labor of love for me. I cannot really well describe the sheer joy or sheer excitement that I felt when I discovered that the people who、uh, seemed to be totally unrelated were actually related to each other by blood or, or marriage. That kind of discovery was nothing short of、uh, exciting or inspiring.、Uh, it Uh, it kept me going, and it was also kind of addictive too, in the sense that it kept、uh, pushing me to look for more family relationships, so that I could experience the same kind of joy, the same kind of sensations, so that I could get high again, so to speak. Yeah, so the whole process was quite time-consuming and difficult, but I enjoyed it. And the fact that, that I enjoyed it is probably what carried me through to the end. I'm I'm not sure if that answers your question about the methodology or sources, but that's basically how I did my research in a pretty straightforward way. There was、uh, nothing elaborate involved. The scope of the research is also astonishing. You write that. You've researched the family backgrounds of every single Thai parliamentarian in the 77 provinces in the country since the beginning of the democratic period in 1932 up to the present, which totals,、uh, wait for it, 3,453 people.、Uh, yes. So that's quite yes. a yes. quite quite a feat. Okay, let's get into some of the key concepts of the book. Perhaps the central concept is this term you use, dynastic democracy. Can you explain to the listener what you mean by the term dynastic democracy? Yes,、yeah, sure. Of course, this concept, dynastic democracy, is central to my argument. It's the title of my book. By this term, I mean. Nominally or procedurally democratic system of government in which a sizable number of MPs or members of parliament come from political families. It's a system in which parliamentary office held by members of different political families has been shared with and transferred to the other members of the same families. It's a system that allows that enables political families to protect and advance their political and economic interests. So it's essentially an elitist form of、uh, elitist type of democracy that is antithetical to or inimical to a pluralist or representative democracy. And my my book is essentially a macro level study of Thailand's family based political elites that have made and made what I call dynastic democracy since the 1932 revolution overthrew the absolute monarchy. 
broadly speaking, my book is, my argument in the book is that there are two types of political elites that come from two types of political families. Uh, the first type of families, which I call uh, commoner capitalist families, that is the families that have uh, massive investments in uh, various sectors of uh, Thailand's capitalist economy. I argue that these families have constituted a dynastic democracy since 1932, especially in the decades after 1973. Again, this is the period in which Thailand's uh, electoral politics has uh, taken deeper root. I argue that uh, the members of these families have have held the lion's share of seats in parliament, and they have uh, shared and then transferred those seats among themselves. Banhan's uh, family, the Silabaja family, is a prime example of uh, such families. That's one aspect of my argument. On the other hand, I argue that this uh, dynastic democracy, which as just mentioned, has been controlled and dominated by commoner capitalist families, has been increasingly challenged and appended by the second type of uh, political families, which I call princely and uh, bureaucratic families. By princely families, I mean the families that are descended from the sons of uh, Chakri dynasty kings, especially King Mongkut, Rama IV, and uh, also King Jolalongkong, Rama V. Good example of such families is the Pramod family, which produced the two prime ministers in the 1970s, Seni and the and the bureaucratic families refer to the families whose ancestors or founders had served the absolute monarchy before 1932 in various bureaucratic capacities and had received elaborate bureaucratic titles. A good example of such families is the Wejichiwa family, which produced one of the recent prime ministers for Thailand, Apisit. And another example is the Panyala Chung family, which produced another former prime minister of Thailand, Anand, uh, one of the figures that I talk extensively about in my book. And these two royalist families are closely aligned with the monarchy, uh, I mean the princely and bureaucratic families, are oftentimes related to each other by, by marriage. And my argument is that in recent times, in recent decades, especially in the 2000s, members of these families have, have been involved in destabilizing and undermining dynastic democracy. They have uh, supported and engineered military coups, court interventions, and other kinds of uh, maneuverings to oust uh, democratically elected uh, common dynastic MPs, viewing these uh, MPs as being uh, corrupt, as being uh, given to vote-buying violence, and as being uh, detrimental to good, honest governance in the country. So, in a nutshell, my argument in the book is that Thailand's political history since 1932 can be viewed as a history of struggles for and against a dynastic democracy between two kinds of elites that come from two types of political families. Of course, I do not argue that this is the only or the definitive way to, to look at the Thailand's political history. That's not my point, but I'm just proposing an alternative, hopefully viable way to re interpret the Thailand's political history. And, sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Sorry, if I can just jump in there. If we could just take it back a little a little bit. I want to talk about uh, one, one aspect of these political families that you discuss in the book, that is their durability. And I guess many people might have thought that over time as democratic politics in Thailand uh, have, have developed, albeit with hiccups along the way, 
that this nature of dynastic politics have faded. But you seem to argue that since the student overthrow of the military dictatorship in 1973, which, as you said, is the beginning of the increasing salience of democratic politics in the modern period. Since then, political families have had an even greater role in Thailand's parliament. Why is this the case? Yeah, in the decades since 1973, I think we needed to distinguish between two kinds of uh, political families. You know, when I when I say that political families have become even more important in the decades since 1973, I'm talking about uh, the uh, commoner political families, not the princely and the bureaucratic families. Well, as mentioned earlier. One aspect of my argument in the book is that uh, the dominant types of uh, political families in parliament have changed over the decades. In the uh, decades before 1973, especially in the early decades after the 1932 revolution, the dominant uh, political families in parliament were princely and the bureaucratic families. Uh, they had uh, controlled the majority of seats in parliament and also they controlled uh, the majority of cabinet positions. So they had established and enjoyed a dominant position in parliament at the time. And these are the families that contributed to the emergence and uh, expansion of uh, dynastic democracy in the early decades after 1932. But uh, since then, over the years, these uh, families, uh, princely and bureaucratic families, have lost their dominance to uh, the numerically superior commoner capitalist families. The commoner capitalist families have come to supersede princely and bureaucratic families as the dominant players in uh, parliamentary politics. The princely and bureaucratic families have lost to the commoner families for several reasons. First of all, candidates from uh, princely and bureaucratic families are far outnumbered by the candidates from commoner capitalist families. And also, commoner capitalist families have far more electoral resources uh, at their disposal. Like, for example, they have far more financial resources, uh, that is money that can be used to buy votes in some or many cases. And also, commoner capitalist families, uh, at least some of them, have far more coercive resources, like uh, guns, uh, weapons, uh, professional gunmen for hire, these coercive resources resources can be used to intimidate the rival candidates or even to get them killed if necessary. And also, common capitalist families have far more uh, human resources, uh, that is, uh, extensive uh, patron-client ties, which can be used to garner votes at election time. So for these and perhaps some other reasons, the princely and the bureaucratic families have lost their grip on parliament to the commoner capitalist families. So one of the points that I make in the book is that it is the latter type of families, the commoner uh, capitalist families, that have established a dominant position in parliamentary politics. So I think we need to distinguish between these two kinds of uh, families and the changing balance of power between these two types of families over time. Your analysis of Thai politics through the lens of political families throws up some questions about important events in Thai political history. And perhaps most controversially, you have a very interesting interpretation of the 1932 overthrow of the absolute monarchy and the role played by political families. Can you explain to the listener what role political families played in the 1932 revolution or change of government or whatever term we, we, we'd like to use? Well, this event, the 1932 coup or revolution, is, it's a fascinating event in the history of Thailand. 
according to Craig Reynolds' recollection, Ben Anderson once said to him that the 1932 coup or revolution is the most puzzling, the most bizarre event in the history of Thailand. Uh, I think most, uh, many observers of Thailand would agree with that assessment. So as is well known, uh, many of the participants in the coup called the promoters, they received advanced education in Europe, especially in France. And while in while studying in uh, Europe, they embraced and imbibed Western liberal political values, even Republican uh, political thoughts. They were profoundly disillusioned with the system of absolute monarchy in their home country and also disillusioned with the way political office was being monopolized by the members of the royalist establishment. So they viewed the absolute monarchy as an anachronistic institution. They wanted to rebel against it, uh, wanted to abolish it and replace it with a, a democratic system of government. They were intent on bringing about a fundamental revolutionary change in the character of the government. They were intent on uh, reducing or even destroying the political power of the royalist establishment. So in June 1932, these people, the promoters, rebelled against the absolute monarchy and they did succeed in overthrowing the system. But they did not completed their revolution. Their subsequent actions after 1932 turned out to be less than revolutionary. They allowed the conservative older guard, the conservative royalist elite who had served the absolute monarchy before 1932 to continue to control various kinds of a political office in the new post-coup government after 1932. Just to give one example, the promoters invited Prayamano, Prayamano Pagandititada, a diehard of the royalists who had served as a Supreme Court judge before 1932 to become Thailand's first prime minister after 1932. As exemplified by this kind of appointment, the promoters made a series of uh, compromises or accommodations with the royalist establishment. They failed to make a clear, sharp break with the royalist past. So as a result, there was a great deal of historical continuity or regime continuity between the two eras, between the era of the absolute monarchy before 1932 and the new era after 1932. In the language of Federico Ferreira, this is the unfinished business of the 1932 coup. The natural question is why? Why didn't the promoters finish their revolution? Why did they allow the conservative royalist elites to hold the political office even after 1932? What explains the failure of the 1932 revolution? What explains the regime continuity, historical continuity between the two eras? And existing literature gives several reasons for this failure, for the regime continuity. One reason concerns the the lack of political experience on the part of the promoters. According to this explanation, the promoters were politically inexperienced people, so they had no choice but to turn to and rely on the politically experienced conservative elites who had made up the political elite before 1932 to run the new post-coup government after 1932. That's one explanation given in the, in the literature. And another reason given in the literature is that the promoters were deeply concerned about the possible intervention of foreign powers, especially Britain, which had maintained extensive, massive economic investments in Siam. 
so according to this explanation, the promoters were afraid that if there was a sudden radical revolutionary change in the character of the government, then the foreign powers like Britain would use it as an excuse or pretext for intervening in the domestic affairs of Siam. Of course, the promoters did not want to see that happen, so they were compelled to give an appearance of regime continuity to allay the fears of Britain and other foreign powers by appointing the conservative elites to the new government after 1932. So these are some of the most important reasons given in the literature to explain the failure of the 1932 revolution, to explain why the promoters chose to appoint the conservative royalist elites to the new government. And I do not refute the validity of these reasons. I actually think that there's a lot to these reasons, but I want to offer an additional reason, which to my knowledge, none of the existing literature has ever provided before. I argue that the 1932 revolution failed, partly, at least partly, because there was a blurred division between the promoters and the royalist establishment. That is, as I have shown in one of the book chapters, Nearly half of the promoters were related by blood or marriage to the princely and the bureaucratic elites, uh, bureaucrat families, whose political power they ostensibly intended or wanted to curtail. So just to give a few examples, Pibun Songkran, one of the main promoters, was related by virtue of his sons and uh, daughters' marriages to a renowned princely family, the Sanidwans, descended from Rama II, and also to a prominent bureaucratic family, the Panyarachuns, which had produced two high-ranking civil servants before 1932, and another main coup promoter, Pridi Panomyon was uh, related via his wife, Punsuk, to Jaupraya Yomarat Pansukum, who had served as uh, Minister of Interior and as Privy Councillor before 1932. I argue that these kinds of family ties constrained the promoters from doing what they were ostensibly intent on doing, which is, again, to reduce or even destroy the power of the royalist establishment. They probably didn't have a very strong incentive to do so, in my view. I suggest that they were less than wholeheartedly committed to their publicly professed revolutionary goal. They were half-hearted, lukewarm revolutionaries at best. Uh, Given the family ties, uh, they had developed a high stake in preserving the status quo or in not rocking the boat too much politically. So to give the example of Apridi again, uh, shortly before his death in exile in Paris, one Thai academic paid him a visit there and asked him the burning question that so many people were eager to ask him, which is, why didn't the promoters just complete their revolution? And Pridi gave a terse answer, which I think is nonetheless richly suggestive. Uh, he said, we couldn't do it because we were of the same group. I think he had in mind the kinds of family networks that I discuss in my book. So in my book, I offer an additional reason for the failure of the 1932 revolution. I understand that this may be a controversial interpretation or explanation. Nonetheless, I hope that it will stimulate further debate and research on the 1932 coup and on the meaning and the historiography of that coup. Another very interesting thing you do in the book is to expand Duncan McCargo's famous concept of a network monarchy. Now, in McCargo, network monarchy refers to these proxies of the king in various influential institutions like the Privy Council, the Crown Property Bureau, the Judiciary, the Military, and so on, who together 
carry out the king's will. But your view of network monarchy is that it is based more on the connections between what you call princely and bureaucratic families. Can you explain what you mean? Well, McGargo's concept of network monarchy, uh, it was originally propounded in 2005, and it has uh, uh, turned out to be enormously influential, and it's a very useful concept, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, it has shaped much of the academic discourse and recent Thai politics, but I think that the concept has been used a little bit too uncritically or a bit too liberally. Uh, actually, this concept has its own share of uh, weaknesses. Macago himself knows that, as he acknowledged in one interview. And one uh, weakness of the concept that I point out in my book is that Macago's concept pays really practically no attention to the importance of a pervasive family ties that bind much of the royalist elites together. I do not argue that all royalist elites are related to each other by blood or marriage, but many of them are, which Macago does not uh, does not consider. His assumption seems to be that the royalist elites are bounded together by their shared common ideological devotion to the monarchy alone. I do not dispute the importance of ideological bonds, but I argue that uh, there's a bit more to their cohesion. I argue, and I have shown in my book, that they are bounded together not only by their loyalty to the monarchy alone, but also by their mutual family ties, by blood and uh, marriage ties. And I shed light on some of these family ties by focusing on the case of Anam Panyarachun, former Prime Minister of Thailand, died in the war royalist who's been involved in various kinds of actions taken against the dynastic camera in peace. I have shown in my book that Anand and his family members are have truly dense and extensive ties with some of the most distinguished uh, priestly and bureaucratic families in the country. So just to give a few examples, Anand's wife, Sosri, is a great-granddaughter of King Chulalongkong on her maternal side, and she's also a great-great-granddaughter of King Mongkut on her paternal side. And Anand's mother, Puk, came from a prominent bureaucratic family, the Chotik Satyans. Her nephew, Tong Chai, once served as a privy counselor for King Pumipom. And Anand's daughter, Nanda, has married into another prominent bureaucratic family, the Grairok family. Her father-in-law, Pumpom, once served as a director of the Crown Property Bureau, an investment arm for the royal family. And Pumpom's uncle, Lao, was a high-ranking civil servant before 1932, who had served as president of the uh, Supreme Court and also as a privy counselor and uh, received uh, the Jaupraya uh, title, one of the highest bureaucratic titles awarded before 1932. Again, these kinds of uh, family ties uh, get no mention at all in Macago's influential concept. So what I have done in my book is not really to refute his concept, which I do find enormously useful, but to try to refine it or to point out one element of the network monarchy that is conspicuously missing in his concept. This is how I have tried to contribute to our existing knowledge of, uh, of our understanding of the royalist elite's role in Thai politics. The book is it sort of presents a narrative of, of different turning points in modern Thai political history, again, through the lens of family politics. And one fascinating period you look at is the, the reform movement in the late 1990s. So there's this, as you, as you discuss it, there's this reform movement backed by conservative interests. 
which purport to introduce or promote good governance. And it, you know, it culminates in the 1997 constitution, which sets up a number of powerful new institutions. And you identified two of the most important. They were the elected Senate and the party list system. Can you explain why these new institutions impacted on dynastic politics? Yeah, so this is uh, one deep irony that I try to highlight in my book. This irony concerns the effects of the sweeping electoral reforms introduced by the royalist elites after 1997. Specifically, the royalist elites led by Anand, Panyarachun, among many others, imposed uh, wide-ranging electoral reforms after Thai economy was devastated by the Asian financial crisis, which, according to the royalist elite's allegation, was caused in part by the corrupt practices among dynastic MPs. To prevent these MPs from ever winning office again, the royalist elites promulgated a new constitution, the so-called People's Constitution of 1997, under which sweeping electoral reforms were introduced. There are two cornerstones of these reforms, as you mentioned, and as I argue in my book. One was to make the Senate completely elected, and the other was to introduce the party system. And both of these institutional initiatives were designed to to allow distinguished uh, individuals of high moral standards to hold the political office. But quite ironically, uh, both of these institutions ended up being dominated and controlled by the very dynastic MPs from commoner capitalist families whose political power the royalist uh, elites wanted to eliminate. So what happened is like this, uh, very briefly, once the party list system was uh, introduced, the senior well-established politicians uh, from commoner political families like uh, Ban Han Silabacha of uh, Supambri and also Sanotiantan of uh, Sakeo province moved to the party list and got elected on the new system. And the constituency seats that were freed up by these senior politicians moves to the party list were simply filled by their family members. In addition, these senior politicians uh, fielded other relatives to run for seats in the elected Senate. So in the end, what the well-intended electoral reforms did was only to provide additional opportunities for for the already well-entrenched commoner capitalist families to further increase their representation in parliament. So this is uh, one irony that I try to highlight in my book. And you suggest that the 2006 and 2014 coups were a royalist pushback against the domination of the Thai parliament by these common capitalist political families that, as you say, ironically had come to dominate politics as a result of these reforms that the royalists had pushed through in the late 1990s. But as you write, the problem was with the uh, the coups and the uh, the military regimes which followed them. It, it politicised the monarchy in a way that stoked anti-monarchy feelings. So the yeah, the military was forced to revert to democratic parliamentary politics, which they hoped to control. But once again, the commoner capitalist families make a comeback. And it, there's a very fascinating chapter in which you write about the government of General Bayut Jan Ucha and the role of commoner capitalist families in his government. Again, ironically, can you tell the listener how that came about? So this is another deep irony that I try to highlight in my book. It concerns the the ironic actions taken by the incumbent Prime Minister Prayut and the effects of his actions on the civility of his regime. To elaborate a bit more, as is well known, uh, Prayut is a diehard, uncompromising royalist 
who grabbed the power in the military coup of 2014. He has justified the seizure of power by emphasizing and repeating the need to uphold the prestige of the monarchy and to eliminate the influence of Thaksin, who allegedly lacks due respect for the monarchy. And given this ideological stance, what Prayut did uh, before and after the last general election of 2019 couldn't have been more ironic. That is, in contesting the, this election, the election of 2019, he was navigating into uncharted waters. He was a political novice. So he had never contested any election before, and he didn't have any strong base of support anywhere in the country. So he was uh, hard-pressed to, to try to bolster the electoral chances of his newly founded political party, Palam Pracharat. And to meet this uh, imperative need, he was compelled to to recruit many dynastic candidates from common political families, including even those that had taken sides with the tax in, in previous years, because these candidates had distinctive electoral advantages and also had a proven track record of winning elections. Prayut did succeed in, in recruiting these candidates, and many of them did win parliamentary seats, but their loyalty to Prayut has been quite questionable from the get-go. They have joined his political party, not for ideological reasons, uh, not because they agree with his ideological stance, but for instrumental reasons mainly. So Prayut never knew when these people might defect to the uh, taxing camp. After all, those people had supported taxing before. So again, these MPs helped Prayut come back to power as prime minister after the last general election. But quite ironically, the presence of these people has made his political party quite unstable from the uh, very beginning. In addition, once the election was over, uh, since his uh, political party, Palang Pracharat, was not able to win a majority in parliament, he was forced to uh, form a coalition government with a bunch of other parties like Pumjai Thai Party, which are also dominated by uh, dynastic commoner MPs, whose loyalty uh, Prayut could not completely trust either. Many of these MPs had taken sides with the Taksin before too, and many of them have a reputation as a serial party hoppers. At the same time, Prayut has had to face formidable opposition parties such as Puatai, which are also dominated by dynastic MPs from commoner families. These MPs and their families continue to be closely aligned with the Taksin for ideological or instrumental reasons, or perhaps for both of these reasons. So, uh, my argument here is that Prayut's regime, or the royalist regime in general, has had a very weak or fragile foundation in parliament because of uh, Prayut's own actions. Uh, he's brought this uh, predicament onto himself because he's had to abide by the logic of uh, parliamentary politics. That is, first of all, because he had to win an election, and second, uh, because he's had to maintain a majority in parliament. So this is another deep irony that I try to highlight in my book. Of course, Thailand's not the only country where political families are active in the political scene. In the latter part of the book, you compared Thailand with the Philippines. Can you say something about the similarities and differences in families' politics between the two countries? 
dynastic politics and dynastic democracy is, of course, by no means uh, unique to Thailand. It has appeared in many other countries of the world, like uh, Mexico, India, and not forgetting the Philippines, which, as many scholars have shown, is the paradigmatic case of dynastic democracy in Southeast Asia. So, as you mentioned, I compare and contrast the Philippines briefly to Thailand in the last chapter of my book. I argue that dynastic democracy has appeared in Thailand as well as in the Philippines because both of these countries have the same type of a political culture. That is what Max Weber calls a patrimonial political culture, culture in which a political office held by a particular politician is viewed as an extension of that politician's personal property or family property. In this culture, public office is regarded as one kind of a shareable and a transferable family heirloom. This culture is deeply entrenched in Thailand because of what the Chakri dynasty kings had done during the era of the absolute monarchy before 1932. Back in those days, the kings used their vast political powers to appoint their sons and other relatives to high positions in the government and also bureaucracy, despite their lack of expertise and experience. So these kings did a lot to perpetuate the patrimonial political culture, which has endured to this day. Uh, so this culture is the is one negative historical legacy of the era of the absolute market. And I argue that the Philippines has the same type of uh, political culture, and I argue that is precisely why uh, dynastic democracy has uh, appeared and endured in, the, in that country as well. But there's one important clear difference between the two countries in terms of the stability of uh, dynastic democracy. That is, uh, dynastic democracy in Thailand has been a lot more more fragile or unstable than the one in the Philippines. And I argue that the most important reason for this crucial difference is that Thailand has what the Philippines doesn't have. That is uh, princely and uh, bureaucratic families that constantly meddle in electoral politics and undermine it. So as I said earlier, members of these uh, royalist families have uh, supported and engineered uh, military coups, uh, court rulings, and uh, so forth to overthrow a democratically elected government dominated or controlled by dynastic commoner and peace. Yeah, so as a result, the dynastic democracy in Thailand has uh, suffered periodic reversals and setbacks. In this respect, Thailand's uh, dynastic democracy has been a lot more fragile or, or unstable than the one in the Philippines. And this is what makes Thailand's uh, dynastic democracy unique or different from the one in the Philippines and in many other countries for that matter. On one hand, dynastic democracy in Thailand has been so durable, uh, there's no doubt about that. But on the other hand, it's been so fragile. So dynastic democracy in Thailand has been so durable and so fragile at once. Thailand's uh, dynastic democracy has displayed, uh, displayed these two seemingly contradictory or, or paradoxical features. And I argue that this is what sets Thailand apart from other countries in which dynastic democracy has also appeared. I know that your book has only just come out, but could I ask you if you've had any feedback from any of the Thai political families that you discuss in your book? No, not that I know of. None of them has written to me. Uh, yeah, if there's any family who uh, has any feedback on my uh, book, I would love to hear it. Before we conclude, we always like to ask interviewees uh, whether they are working on a new project and could you tell us what that project might be? 
This might come as a bit of a surprise to you, but I'm, I'm going to work on something completely different from what I had worked on before. That is going to be a comparative study of authoritarian rule, authoritarian regimes in Southeast Asia. I'm interested in the big question, what makes some authoritarian regimes more durable than others? Why is it that some authoritarian regimes fall from power while others continue to stay firmly in power? This is one of the biggest questions, the hardest questions in the field of comparative politics. And this is actually the question that I was originally interested in when I was a graduate student a long time ago. Uh, but uh, after I got into graduate school, in my first year at the graduate school, I changed my mind, I changed my focus, and I decided to focus on rural type politics instead, thanks to the influence of my advisors like Charles Geis and Dan Lev. But now I want to go back to my original interest. You might say that I'm coming uh, full circle after all these years. Uh, this project is uh, still at, at an early stage. It's uh, just gotten off the ground, but I'm uh, quite excited about it. And it's the topic that I'm going to sink my teeth into in the next uh, several years. So uh, please wish me good luck. <laughs> uh, good luck indeed. Yoshinori Nishizaki, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Dynastic Democracy, Political Families in Thailand, published in 2022 by University of Wisconsin Press. Thank you, Patrick. It's been my pleasure. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to some other podcasts about books that deal with Thai politics such as Duncan McCargo and Anyarat Chatragun's Future Forward, The Rise and Fall of the Thai Political Party, or M. Sin Peng's Opposing Democracy in the Digital Age, The Yellow Shirts in Thailand. You can download or stream this interview and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.